Lula, as he is universally known, has attained such iconic status today that it can be hard to remember just how scary he seemed, at least to the rich, when he first burst onto Brazil's political scene. A proud child of the country's destitute Northeast, Lula had been born the seventh of eight children in the hard scrabble state of Pernambuco. His family was so hard up that the future president was forced to drop out of school after the second grade in order to make money shining shoes. At ten, he taught himself to read. At fourteen, Lula somehow worked his way into a factory, where he eventually lost his left pinky finger to a machine press. Then he got involved in Brazil's powerful labor movement and discovered his calling. Rising rapidly through the ranks of the São Bernardo do Campo Metal Workers Union, Lula became the organization's leader at age thirty. And five years later, while the country was still ruled by a military dictatorship, he helped found the Leftist Workers' Party, PT, in order to give the downtrodden a voice on the national stage. By 2002, Lula had already run for president and lost three times. Although he had never been a Marxist, unlike many of his PT comrades, his earlier campaigns had featured calls to nationalize industry and default on the country's debt. When he finally started climbing in the polls, such talk, along with his rough roots and his campaign promise to eradicate poverty within a generation, thoroughly spooked elites and investors at home and abroad. In the United States, Henry Hyde, the Republican chair of the House International Relations Committee, denounced him as a pro-Castro radical. Goldman Sachs began publishing a Lula meter that purported to track the risks to investors should the PT win. Nervous foreign banks started cutting off credit. Brazil's fragile economy, which was just starting to pick up, went into a dive. The main stock index fell by 30%. Investors started dumping their Brazilian holdings, yanking more than $12 billion in capital out of the country within a few months. And the value of the real, Brazil's currency, fell by 40% against the dollar, hitting an all-time low toward the end of 2002. Yet enough Brazilians were sick of the country's feudal social structure and the pain caused by Cardoso's necessary but unpopular structural reforms and austerity measures that Lula won anyway. As the unkempt union man prepared to take office and the economy continued to crater, the country braced for the epic confrontation but the cataclysm never arrived. Although Lula did enter office plotting a revolution, it was nothing like the one his conservative critics feared. His earlier defeats and the vicious reaction to his eventual victory hadn't weakened Lula's commitment to social change. But they had made him rethink how to produce that change. Between 1993 and 2001, he and José Graziano, an American-born agronomist, who was one of Lula's closest advisors, had gone on extensive listening tours throughout the country. And the politician who emerged was far more moderate, conciliatory, and politically canny than his earlier incarnation. Lula had realized that he would never get far if he tried to govern on behalf of just part of Brazil. He needed to ensure that his revolution would benefit everyone. And so the rabble-rouser metamorphosed into the great conciliator.
Lula banished all talk of debt defaults and wealth redistribution from his lexicon. Recasting himself as what the Rio-based journalist Mac Margolis has called the CEO whisperer, amigo to the middle class, and champion of a rules-based market democracy. The move caused grumbling within the PT, but Lula held firm. On taking office, he pledged to preserve Cardoso's tight fiscal and monetary policies. Shortly after his inauguration in January 2003, he picked Enrique Morales, a well-regarded financial executive and Cardoso ally, to run Brazil's central bank, and Antonio Palocci, another sober centrist, as finance minister. And then he started hacking away at Brazil's bloated national budget, cutting spending by about $4 billion in his first year, and imposing an even stricter budget surplus target than the International Monetary Fund recommended.